Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. If not for moments when, in righteous judgment, God draws his restraint from sinners, we might find it impossible to believe that individuals could reach such heights of cruelty and wickedness as some have done. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going back to Weathersfield in Connecticut on December 13th of 1782 to listen to a sermon by John Marsh. Troy, how you doing? Joel, I am doing overall pretty well. It is, I mean, my time, middle of January here. I mean, I know it is for you too. I feel like this this year is already going faster than last year, which I really like. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of good things going on, so I'm excited. And a little spoiler here, a little excitement for the audience. The script for the next deep dive is officially finished and ready to be recorded between Joel and I. I put a lot of time over the Mm -hmm. Christmas break into it, probably time I should have spent on other things. Uh, But let me tell you, this next episode that we have coming out took a very long time uh, to get all this together. It is the longest deep dive we have ever produced and will be by a a bit. Um, But if you were excited for one of the craziest stories that we do, and we do these deep dives, if you're new to this this show, uh, we do these episodes, usually we put them on Patreon, and we just tell these really crazy stories that are true. They're real stories that happen in history from the Salem witch trials to the history of Ethiopia to the London fire. Uh, they usually end up being people's favorite episodes. They always tell us like, oh my gosh, I can't believe all that was true. I remember we just got a comment on YouTube not that long ago for our London fire episode. Someone was like, this needs to be a book. I can't believe this. So really excited that that's coming down the pipe and excited to announce that our Taiping Rebellion episode that I think I announced like six months ago. Maybe it was longer than that. Anyway, it's finally, the script is finally finished. Yeah, yeah I think I, I don't I mean, it, maybe I imagined it, but I definitely have an image of you coming out of that uh, dusty uh, dungeon <laughs> of, uh, that you've locked yourself in for months on end. There's like an old typewriter back there and a big ream of paper that's like 10 inches tall. And you're, you're saying, I finished, <laughs> I finally finished the script. Dude, you know what? That's actually exactly right. That is 100% what it is. It's just like the guy who's like, I've done it. I finished my, my work. And it's funny because my poor, my poor wife, Elise, who runs Martyrs and Missionaries, has to hear me like every, like as I'm working on these, just come up to her and be like, you know what's just like this thing, this obscure thing happening in China, this today, or, you know, whatever. Or she'll be like, I was talking with so-and-so. And he's like, you know that? And like, it just, I, I, my world was revolved around the Taiping Rebellion for like two weeks straight because I was like, I have to finish this script already. It's been months and it is done. I'm very excited to record this and to have it out there. The only sad part for me is I love, do, I love doing the deep dives. I do. My only sadness is like, I put a lot of effort and time into them. It goes into a single podcast episode and then it's out there and it's done. I'm like, I, I need to start turning these into books or something. These need to get like, we need these to go further because it's so much, it's so much work. And then it's out there. It's recorded. If you have the Patreon, you listen to it. And I'm like, I I want, I want more people to hear these stories because they're just so crazy. So I've got to figure out how to do that. But for now, this episode is ready. Well, when we record it, how are you doing by the way? I'm doing pretty good. It's getting cold here. Uh, I have a daughter. You might even be hearing her occasionally in the background. Yeah. She is three weeks old-ish, so she's cruising. She's starting to put on that yeah. that like baby weight, trying you know, because they're drinking so much milk, mm. and then they get all they get their little fat rolls. So uh, yeah. they're definitely entering entering that phase where they just get chubby and and just happy little full babies full of milk. Cute, very nice. I will say. Um, 
on how you how you're not just dead tired. I remember when we had kid number two, that one wiped me mm-hmm. out. And I know there are people listening to you like kid number five. I get it. You guys are champions. I'm just saying, kid number two, I was so wiped that entire year, just balancing it all. All right. Uh, wanted to mention a review we got on Spotify. This person uh, bought. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how to say your name. I'm super sorry. Bought. It looks like bought on Valenanes. So I'm. I'm maybe bought on Maybe it's Spanish. Valenanes. Anyway, you know who you are. Uh, and anybody could if you pull up Spotify, you can go read it. Uh, I have listened to a fair amount of episodes. Really enjoyed them. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate that, and uh, we hope you continue listening. And hope you are not insulted that I struggled through your name so bad. By the way, I did not know this until I pulled up. Somebody pulled up Spotify and showed this to me that we actually have like a number of how many reviews and ratings we've had just on Spotify. We knew how many we had on uh, Apple and that we have a perfect 5.0 over there with 180 reviews. Thank you very much. But this is the first time I've ever seen our Spotify reviews. We have 85 reviews. I really appreciate the 85 reviews, but with a 4.9 Spotify, what's going oh, We're not good enough. We're not perfect 5.0. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you are listening on Spotify, we would thank you for leaving us another review, getting that number even higher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. John Marsh. Now, this this is going to be one of those episodes that uh, Tron and I like to do occasionally. These little footnotes in history where we have next to no information on, but it's such a unique and interesting lens into a specific time, a specific moment, a specific day in history uh, in which we see pastors, you know, preaching sermons, obviously, in this case. But, you know, what was the event and surrounding and history around that moment? You're not going to find a lot on John Marsh out there. In fact, if you try to search and do research on him, you're probably going to find more about his son than than about him himself. His son was a famous minister and uh, was really involved in the temperance activist movement in the early 1800s. But John Marsh himself is uh, almost completely unknown to history. Really early on, in our first year at one point, we did a sermon dedicated to the unknown um, pastor where we basically were like, this is a sermon and this guy is not known, like nobody even knows who it was. We also did another sermon by a guy, a very sad sermon uh, by a gentleman who he pre- he was sick, but he got ordained. He like worked with this congregation for a year. He was very sick. He got ordained. He was able to fully preach one sermon and then he passed away and died. And that was another episode where we kind of dedicated like these people who, who they love God and they just aren't remembered. And John Marsh is who really reminded me of one of those guys where he just, he, you know, our, our goal with five thoughts, bring back history, back to life and to bring you people, um, who you wouldn't know otherwise. John Marsh is definitely one of those guys you wouldn't know otherwise. And sadly, we really don't know anything about him. His dad or his son is more famous than him. His dad is like grandpa is more famous than him, but he's nobody. I even found there, the Marsh name is apparently famous. It goes back to the 1100s. They have a European crest. I found a book that was called like the thousands of marshes and their genealogy. And I thought if anywhere would have information, it's this book. And I skimmed through it. I, I had to scroll a long ways just to get to his section and nothing. There's nothing. He has nothing in there at all. His son is famous in the book. Like other people are famous. Uh, there's a John Marsh in eight America came to America in 1636. He's considered like the patriarch guy who started it all. Um, he was a like a preacher, a lawyer. He did it. He was all. He helped found towns in Connecticut. Guy's a big deal, but this you know um, this this grandson or whatever he is doesn't end up being any in any way significant, uh, at least in terms of the historical record. Now, one of the other now a lot of them just named their kid John Marsh. So there's like a ton of them all over the place. One John Marsh became a famous explorer out west who got the Spanish name Don Juan. Uh, another one uh, became a famous composer. There are ministers, lawyers, soldiers. John Marsh is all over. And if your last name is Marsh, you are probably very good chance you're connected to one of these guys somewhere along the way. Um, what's good, though, for us and good for our record, other than just I do think it's worth remembering sometimes these completely forgotten people, because even though you don't know their story, they still matter in God's kingdom. God knows everything about John Marsh and all the things we would like to know he knows. Uh, but I also think it's important that what's good for us in this situation is John Marsh. The reason that we chose this episode is not because of who he was, but instead because of what he was responding to. And we do know a lot about what he responded to. 
the good news for us, though, is it's not really so important that what who John Marsh is. I'm sure he's a great guy. God obviously knows who he is, knows all the details we'd like to know, and I, I do wish we did know more. But what's more important is the reason this sermon was was chosen was because what he was responding to. And actually, this sermon came to us in a very unique way. Usually, I find all the sermons in our show, and I've been you know I've been doing that. But once in a while, somebody will send us a sermon or will bring one to us, and we'll say, "Hey, have you seen this before?" And the person who will be speaking this sermon, uh, Stephen, is actually the guy who said, hey, I I saw this. I think you guys would be interested in it. And as soon as he sent it my way, I was like, yes, I am very interested in this because this is definitely the kind of sermon that you don't get your hands on all the time. And I think it's the kind of a sermon that's really important. I I am really I am really glad to have read it myself. When I read through this sermon, I had, I have thoughts. I have, believe me, I came away with thoughts and, and perspectives that I hadn't thought about before. I think only the kind of, I don't want to say wisdom, but only the kind of knowledge in a sense that comes from somebody having to do what John Marsh is going to have to do. And so I'm really grateful for Stephen messaging us and asking like, Hey, have you, have you found this before? Cause I, it was nowhere on my radar. Yeah. So, uh, back in December of 17, 17- 82, uh, John Marsh pops up on the radar uh, on the historical narrative, preaching a sermon responding to this tragic event that happened in his town. And I think, um, you know, with these more obscure people in history, I feel like they all are often are tied to tragedies. And I think that is more so just a byproduct of that's when stuff was recorded. Like that's when stuff was written down. Like if, if everything was great in his town, we probably wouldn't have any record of him at all. But because there was this abnormal tragedy, um, it made a entry into, you know, that, that town's historical records, things were documented. The sermon was documented, uh, in ways that it wouldn't be otherwise, but it gives us a little peer, a little peek into into inside, of what was going on in Weathersfield, Connecticut. And um, it's this horrible murder-suicide that happens in the community. A man, a father, seems to have have lost it and uh, killed his wife and his four children and uh, eventually himself. And later, you know, they were trying to investigate and see what's going on in it. He seemed like a genuinely disturbed gentleman and he before committing these crimes he documented his intentions and i we're not entirely sure if he's mailed them or if they were for you know like just diary entries uh himself but uh, john marsh references these these letters in this sermon a troubled man a tragic situation uh and it's something that john marsh is now called to kind of be that chaplain that uh that minister to preach over the these the funeral of this poor family. The sermon we are listening to is that funeral, as Joel just said, of this tragedy. So yeah, he has these access to these writings. He sees these things and it, it basically, he's kind of given here's, and this is something I don't think would happen today where the police would say, you know, here's all the writings, do what you need to do for the funeral. But it seems like in this situation, in the 1700s, they, they gave the pastor, you know, access to his diary and his letters and said like, you know, do what you need to do to give that funeral sermon. And, and he did it. And I got to say, I can't imagine anything harder than, you know, being handed a book, a diary, and a bunch of letters or whatever it was and saying, read what this guy did and figure out for us why he did it, Pastor, and then give us a sermon basically on that. Can you imagine? I mean, it would be heartbreaking every time. And, and this guy was specific. He would say, like, this is what I'm going to do. And he wrote about it multiple times. I can't imagine every time you read that, just you that would be awful because you're because you'd know like and he did i i just i without a doubt and even if you didn't have that this would obviously still be the hardest sermon you would probably ever have to preach right maybe the exception of your own child dying perhaps it's just absolutely awful and you are reading the notes that led to this thing and what's one of the things that i i think that and now and, and then adding on top of that you're going to be expected to bring comfort and understanding to this situation they're going to be looking to you to bring some kind of why did this happen the way it did? But this would be somebody you know, somebody in your community. Imagine, you know, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Imagine someone in your neighborhood does this, and you're expected to go through the notes, the letters, and then give the sermon to the to the 
what was left over. And I actually, this wasn't in my notes, but um, he mentions that really there was none of the family of this family. It seems like they moved into that area. They were estranged from their family. So in some ways, even uh, it'd be easier because you had no one there to comfort, but in some ways even sadder. What a lonely event that your community, your church came around to remember them, but their own family is far away. And so you're, you know, you're, this is going to be a prolonged suffering for those people. It shocked the community, obviously it did, and I found even a, a, a newspaper clipping um, from it that was reading and talking about it, and what was really interesting is two things. A, someone had wrote, written like a poem basically being like, can you believe this? Uh, it was part of the headlines, uh, this long poem about what an evil guy this guy was. But then something else I thought was really interesting was they did an investigation, and the police said, you know, after doing an inquiry, we wish we could say this was a case of madness. Like this guy had just lost his mind. Maybe he went hysterical. Maybe a fever got grip of him. But what was really sad is they emphasized like, no, there was no sign of madness in this. He, everyone said his business interests were as they had always been. Um, they said that his relationships with people, his letters, the only hint that this guy was going to do this was the fact that he wrote these letters right beforehand and he had been writing about it. He had apparently been writing about it in his diary for over three years. But if you didn't read his diary and hadn't gotten one of those letters, you would never know. He was a perfectly normal guy. And the and the police just insisted, like, we want to really tell you there was no signs. And that's part of, I think, why the community was probably looking to the pastor, like, please explain this to us. We need help here because on a physical level, this doesn't make sense. This has to have a spiritual reason. I don't think we'll try our hand at like the true crime podcast venue. No. I, don't, I don't think that's for us, but uh, you definitely were like evoking some some very creepy true crime podcast vibes. I felt like coming off <laughs> That's that. funny because I've actually never listened to a true crime podcast. It's not my it's not my cup of tea. But uh, I guess when I was thinking about this episode, that was what was kind of I, I can see that now the newspaper clippings this that. But it really was for me. Just I just I couldn't imagine from the, you know we've had episodes where we've been like, hey, could you imagine being the pastor of the guy who had to go talk to Nazis or the guy who had to do these different things? And and the reason this episode stood out to me, I was like, I can't imagine. Mm -mm being put yeah. into this guy's situation and what I would say. And what he says is unbelievable, I think, in response. Yeah. Yeah, there is... Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, being in that situation. And But yet, you know, we... The, that, those tragedies still happen today. They have been happening for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, as Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, ever since there's been people ever since you know there's been a corrupt world that we lived in there's also been courageous ministers that have to respond and speak to these hard situations Isaiah 45 9 Woe to him that strives with his maker. Sin brings misery with and after it. Had man maintained his primitive state, trouble, sorrow, and death never had been found among the race of Adam. Ever since the defection of the first human pair from God, there has been a strange propensity in mankind to dispute God's authority and find fault with his administration. Such conduct is highly dishonorable, affronting, and provoking to the Lord. He is displeased frequently to punish it in this world, and sometimes in a manner very alarming, and will not fail to make all persist in opposing him to feel sooner or later the dire effects of his righteous, vindictive resentment. Woe, says he in the text, to him that strives with his maker. In this time, I propose an outline. First, to show when men may be said to strive with God. Secondly, to consider the great guilt and danger of striving with him. Thirdly, to apply the subject to the present very solemn and awful occasion. First, I am to show when men may be said to strive with God. This I will do in several specific moments. And first, men strive with God when they refuse to submit to him as their lawgiver. Having made them, he is absolute ownership over them and an indisputable right 
to enact such laws for the direction of their conduct as seems good to him. How happy it is for us that this being on whom we depend for existence and who has sovereign authority over us is himself completely perfect. And so we can be certain that it never was and never will be his pleasure to ordain rules for any of his creatures which do not have their foundation in infinite goodness directed by his complete wisdom. All the laws the Supreme Being has given and to which he requires our submission are adapted to our capabilities and are calculated to advance and secure our best welfare. As well as his glory, for God should require our obedience to a positive precept. Even if we cannot fully comprehend it, we should submit to it, not doubting the wisdom and goodness of his design, his right to give law to us being founded in his absolute ownership of us. We are bound to obey his precepts from a regard to his authority, exclusive of any considering of the properness of the precepts themselves to promote our own happiness. But whenever such suitableness is apparent in any of his laws, it gives an additional argument for our compliance with them. In every allowed instance or disobedience, we, in our actions, deny the authority of God over us and contend with him for dominion. No partial regard to his commandments is sufficient to save us from the charge of striving with him. St. James says, Whoever will keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Chapter 2, verse 5. Whosoever allows and regularly violates any one of the laws of God is guilty of a wicked contempt of his sovereignty and does not obey him in any instance from a proper affection to him and his government. The language of the practice of every person in such a, of such character is that he will not have God to rule over him, that he is his own and will pay no regard to the laws of God. He does instead what is consistent with the gratification of his own irregular and vicious inclinations. Secondly, men strive with God when they find fault the dispensations of his grace. The Father of mankind, in his abundant wisdom, goodness, and mercy, has a method of recovering them for, from the ruins of apostasy to his favor and happiness. At different times and in diverse ways, he has made his discoveries of his mind and will relating to this plan of grace. In the proper time, he sent his only begotten Son into the world to perfect what was lacking in previous revelations, and to exhibit to men a clear and full account of all those things respecting their salvation, with which, in this state of probation, infinite wisdom saw fit to make them acquainted. The statements given to the revelation contained in the sacred scriptures of the Old and New Testament are ample, illustrious, and worthy of God. Every serious, unprejudiced inquirer after truth soon feels their force and is constrained to acknowledge the divinity of the religion taught in the Bible. That any should find fault with an idea of religion so benevolent, so pure, so honorable to God, and advantageous to men, so admirably supported by external as well as internal evidence, is an argument of great blindness and stubbornness. To creatures in our circumstances of guilt and depravity who stand in absolute need of a dispensation of grace, how welcome should be should such a dispensation be? How worthy of the most grateful acceptance by all men of the Christian revelation? No man who rejects this revelation, either upon the idea that it is unnecessary or on account of some difficulties with which some of its doctrines are worked out or difficulties in comprehension due to our limited understanding, or because of the corruption of its teachers. No man who opposes or treats it with neglect and contempt can free himself from the charge of striving with God. To suppose supernatural revelation unnecessary requires either a denial of the criminal departure of man from the state of goodness in which he was originally placed by God, or the presumption that the incompetented goodness, and mercy of God should force him to pardon and receive into favor the guilty, both of which are inconsistent with the light of nature. To reject the gospel on account of the mysteries with how some of its doctrines are worked out is highly unreasonable, unless it is reasonable to reject all beliefs on the same account. 
the beliefs of nature are worked out difficulties as incomprehensible by us as any of the mysteries of the Christian religion. Yes, if once it is admitted, admitted that we can have no satisfactory evidence of the truth of anything we cannot comprehend, we must then commence universal skepticism and doubt the truth even of our own existence. This is wholly unacceptable to us. As to the corruptions of professed Christians, they are, indeed, a humbling consideration. But these corruptions of the Christian religion are not acceptable reasons not to believe. Of all religions that have ever appeared in the world, it is the best calculated to discourage vice, profaneness, and immorality. Christianity is best to promote the cause of piety, virtue, and righteousness. It gives the most pure and excellent, the clearest and fullest instruction and directions respecting our temper and behavior towards God, mankind, and ourselves, and enforces them with the most weighty, powerful, and effective arguments and motives. Arguments and motives superior to any that could have entered the human mind without a revelation from heaven. And despite the corruption so complained of in the Christian world, it is undeniable that where there is knowledge and true religion among men, it is principally where Christianity is known. To, re to reject this religion, which God has bountifully given us in all wisdom and goodness, is to fight against him in the most criminal and dangerous manner. Many professed Christians have practically find fault with the gospel dispensation. The doctrines of Christianity are truly humiliating, well calculated to bring down the pride of apostate men. Sinners, as we are taught in the Book of Inspiration, are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God is set to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. This being God's method of justifying sinners, whoever does not attend to it, but like a self-sufficient Pharisee goes about to establish his own righteousness, is guilty of striving with his maker and attempting to force his way to heaven without submitting himself to the righteousness of God. There is another sort of man who practically finds fault with the dispensation of grace by sitting still and attempting nothing of religious nature, since of themselves they can do nothing good. The great God is sovereign in the giving of his favors, and for wise reasons may see fit, in some instances, son to stop sinners in their career of wickedness and communicate to them all at once and unlooked for the special renewing and sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit. But this is not the ordinary way of dealing with those whom he is graciously pleased to bring into saving relations of himself. For he has given no special sign to sinners that he will pour out his Spirit upon them, outside of repenting and his reproofs, or unless they strive to enter in at the straight gate, or unless they labor for the meat which endures until everlasting life. For unless they attend to the calls and invitations of the gospel, cherish the good work he is communicating to all in common who are favored to hear the gospel and make some proper acceptance of the means of grace. I say, since this is the case, everyone who sits still or rather goes in a course of sin, neglecting and despising the means of grace, faith, and repentance with an expectation of being renewed and made happy by the irresistible grace of God is justly chargeable with the sin of opposing the glorious method of pardon, grace, and salvation published in the gospel. Others practically find fault with the dispensation of the gospel by depending on such a faith in the blood of Christ for pardon and life everlasting, as does not work by love, purify the heart, and overcome the world. Whilst they profess to own him as a priest, they practically deny him as a king and may be justly be ranked with those who refuse to yield submission to God as their lawgiver. Thirdly, men strive with God when they are uneasy with his ordering and disposing of their circumstances in view of how things stand currently, such as, one, when they are discontented with the original structure of things with respect to themselves, such as the look of their bodies or their own intelligence or the quality of their parents and relatives and the general infirmities of human nature. To complain of such things is as wicked and preposterous in any of the human species as to be discontented because they were not created angels and ranked the highest order of them. Will the thing formed say to him that formed it, 
why have you made me this way? Will the clay say to him that molds it, what are you making? Two, they also strive with him when there are afflictions that are threatened or falling off. Some examples. One, when they use unlawful methods, when they encounter affliction. It is natural to all threatened with calamity or pressed with trouble to inquire how they may avoid avoid it or deliverance from it. But by those who have a proper regard for God, an unlawful way of attaining help and deliverance is not considered an option. It is much better to suffer natural evil than to do moral evil that good may come. <clears throat> when there is no regular way of deliverance from affliction, it is evidently the will of God that we should bear it patiently for the presence and quietly wait till he will be pleased to remove it or open a door for our escape. In such a case, to refuse to receive correction, to take irregular courses for the purpose of mitigating our sorrows, or even worse, to fly out of the world in order to get rid of adversity, is a daring opposition to God and betrays a great lack of manly fortitude and bravery. Curse God and die was the advice of the wife of Job when he was called to endure a sad succession of the most trying calamities. But his answer was such as will forever do him honor as a man. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. What? Will we receive good at the hand of God? And will we not receive evil? 2. Men strive with God in afflictions that are brought upon them when they are subtle, sullen and resentful under them. A mournful sense of afflictions is allowable, <clears throat> if not commendable not to be affected to a degree somewhat corresponding to the adversity with which you are visited would be strange. But there is a wide difference between a mournful sense of misfortunes and a sullenness under them. The former is suitable to the law of our creation and may be a powerful means of introdu introducing into the soul that godly sorrow, which works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the second is a sorrow that works death to suffer grief with it, which exceeds its real cause as to bear no proportion to it, to refuse to be comforted, to give place to melancholy so far as to become unfit for the necessary duties of life, to no longer have thankful enjoyment of the remaining blessings of goodness, to no longer entertain worthy thoughts of God and just and benevolent sentiments with respect to our fellow creatures. This is absolutely wrong. It is an implied denial of the justice, the wisdom, the goodness of providence. Three, they strive with God in afflictions when instead of improving them to good purpose, they grow no better but grow worse under them. God does not afflict us willingly nor grieve the children of men. If we would not refuse to be drawn to him with the cords of love, then he would not take harsh methods with us. By our stubbornness and crookedness, we constrain him and almost force him against his inclination to treat us with severity. When he joins us in our journey, it's like having a caring and understanding parent looking out for our well-being. He aims to help and benefit us, even through tough situations. He shows kindness by using difficult experiences that don't destroy us, but give us a chance to grow. If he allows hardships, it's to bring about something even better for us. When we face tough times, it is not because he enjoys being harsh. Rather, he knows it's necessary for our growth. Even when life gets tough, it's because he wants to prevent us from heading down destructive paths and would rather be a bit strict than to let us fall apart completely. Affliction naturally make people reflect and in the hands of fate serve as a powerful catalyst for repentance. Elihu describes their positive impact on sinners, saying that when they feel trapped and afflicted, God makes them see their actions and how they've crossed boundaries. He also helps them listen and learn from the lessons urging them to turn away from wrongdoing. Considering that this is the purpose and result of afflictions, it's appropriate for anyone facing tough times to acknowledge to God, I have learned from correction and I won't stray again. Teach me what I haven't understood. If I've done wrong, I won't repeat it. In simpler terms, David, who experienced afflictions firsthand, acknowledged their true impact. He said, I understand, Lord, that your judgments are fair you disciplined me faithfully, and it was beneficial for me. Before I faced difficulties, I went astray, but now I follow your teachings. However, ignoring the lessons the tough times bring, behaving like Pharaoh, who despite God's numerous warnings, continued sinning and hardening his heart, is like challenging God's authority. 
It's as if those who persist in sin are determined not to let God have control. People with such a mindset should be afraid that God might leave them to their own devices, allowing them to become blind and hard-hearted, accumulating punishment for themselves. Now let's discuss the serious guilt and danger of going against God, our Creator. When individuals oppose their rightful ruler, who alone can bring them true happiness and through the methods he graciously uses, they are acting against their best interests. They constantly risk facing God's anger and might ultimately become examples of his everlasting wrath if they persist in resisting his merciful attempts to save them from destruction. In the eyes of our divine lawgiver, God is indeed our benefactor. We require guidance to shape our attitudes and actions. As beings capable of moral governance, we cannot attain happiness without living with well-ordered intentions and behaviors. The nature of divine directives offers immense rewards to those who adhere to them. The overarching purpose of God's grace is to correct the chaos caused by our neglect of his holy law, to lead us back to surrendering to his authority, to establish within us that realm characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of God's providential dealings aligns with this compassionate purpose. Considering this, how low and grateful and foolish it is to oppose him. In resisting him, we oppose our own best interests. Our situation would be dire if God would leave us under the control of a worldly mindset. Sin carries its own weight of punishment. The turmoil and disorder it brings upon the soul are profoundly distressing. It's deeply troubling to be in a state of contention with God. Those who do so are guilty of disregarding his infinite majesty, belittling his wisdom, undermining his justice, misusing his kindness, and challenging his power as if they were more powerful. God's patience has its limits. His spirit will not strive with humanity indefinitely. This leads me to say, anyone who contends with God remains at risk of becoming examples of his punitive anger and might eventually become monuments to his eternal wrath if they persist in opposing his merciful attempts to rescue them from destruction. We are completely within his control. His patience in the face of disrespect toward him is not due to any lack of power to punish. Whenever he chooses, he can rid himself of his adversaries and retaliate against his enemies. He can unleash his intense pleasure, displeasure upon them, causing them to regret their folly in rising against and opposing him. No one can evade the woes declared by God if they persist in opposing his rule. There's an appointed day of wrath and a revelation of God's last judgment where he will reward every individual based on their actions. Those who persist in doing good, seeking glory, honor, and immortality will receive eternal life. However, for those who are contentious, disobey the truth, and practice unrighteousness, there will be indignation, wrath, trouble, and distress upon every person who does evil. On that significant and fearful day, the Lord Jesus, appointed by God to judge the world, will be revealed from heaven with his powerful angels in fiery judgment against those who do not acknowledge God and disobey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will face punishment with eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. This emphasizes the urgency for me to mention. In this third part, I plan to relate these reflections to a profoundly serious and dreadful incident that occurred last Wednesday morning within our community. The horrifying and appalling actions carried out by an individual in this community have shown us these points too clearly. To witness a person, seemingly a caring spouse and a loving affectionate parent, methodically and calmly commit the atrocious act of murdering a beloved wife and four innocent, promising children and subsequently taking his own life is an event so uncommon, so startling, and so beyond belief that we can hardly acknowledge its reality. The bodies of the unfortunate women and children bearing tragic marks of violence lie here before us, proving this heartbreaking sight. If there hadn't been a written record of his intentions and thoughts about the annihilation of himself and his family, we might have attributed it to a sudden and extreme hysteria of some kind. However, through his writings, it's evident that he had contemplated this for three years. He originally planned to carry out this horrible act on the 18th of last month. Not long before this, he wrote, and I quote, I plan to end the lives of six individuals. I do this out of perfect humanity and the most profound fondness and friendship. 
No mortal father has ever felt more of these loving connections than I have. He admitted uncertainty about how he would carry out this task until the moment arrived, but he believed he would execute it as calmly and resolutely as he would have a regular meal or retire to bed. In one of his final letters, he wrote, any person undertaking a significant task while thinking should be careful and deliberate. They should think and reflect repeatedly on the matter. On the morning of December 6th, I woke before dawn, felt composed, and left my wife in a drowsy state. I entered the room where my infant slept, finding them all peacefully asleep. I had the means of death with me, but hadn't decided whether to act. I stood over them and asked God if it was right to act at that moment, but received no answer, nor do I believe anyone ever does while on earth. I then examined myself, finding no fear, trembling or horror. I then went to an adjoining room to look at myself in the mirror, but noticed no change in my appearance or feeling. This is the truth as I swear by God, but for further testing I postponed it. And when the fateful morning arrived, it appears that without hesitation, he initiated the despicable act of murdering his wife, four children, and himself with the same steadiness, calmness, and firmness he had before. What a twisted individual he was. What were his beliefs that led him into such detestable and barbaric actions? It is crucial for us to comprehend these beliefs. We must guard against them and avoid them as they are highly destructive to individuals and society itself. He left behind a written account of these beliefs. Referring to the Christian religion, he remarked, It is an extremely benevolent system and would yield significant results if generally believed and universally practiced. I firmly believed in it for many years, but my adherence to its principles when everyone else abandoned them has been my ruin here on earth. But never mind that anymore. If it is indeed true, I will yet be saved by it. However, I must admit generously that I have as many doubts about it, its truth as I have about any other religious doctrine that has appeared in the world. When I consider people as Christians, I view them as free agents. I have scrutinized both the Old and New Testaments and believe that their true meaning and intent there. But when I perceive a man as a deist, or one who does not believe in revelation, I consider him a mere machine incapable of acting except when manipulated by some higher power. I've rejected all popular religions worldwide and intend to die a true deist. I generally believe that nothing wrong has ever been done in the world. I am convinced that all is as it should be, that we are compelled to say and do everything that we say and do whether a tyrant king or a few fierce Republicans causing bloodshed across three-quarters of the world, or my killing my family, or a man destroying wasps or a fly, all are directed by the hand of heaven as the creation of, his, of this entire world. And if this is true, then there is no such thing as sin. You see, he completely owns that he had apostatized from the Christian religion and embraced the principles of deism and fatalism that he believed men to be mere machines and God the author of all their actions in such a sense as to exclude the possibility of sin from the world. The idea of future punishment he also rejects as inconsistent with the goodness of God. Though he says, I know by experience there is no lack of hells in this state of things and seems to be full of the opinion that he and his, his will be happy in the future world where he is right were not in rejecting the Christian revelation. These principles appear to have played a huge influence in reconciling him to do actions which may have several self-evident evil in them, actions which every man's mind at first view cannot but abhor and condemn. Pride, impatience, and cowardice first led him to think of destroying himself and family, and these sins worked on him until he was moved to do. He had a very high opinion of his intellectual abilities, and was uneasy with the shabbiness of his personal appearance and the slenderness of his fortune. He writes, My person is small and hard to look at, and my circumstances were always rather lacking, which are great disadvantages in this world. But I have great reason to think that my soul is above the common multitude. There are but few men capable of true deism. <clears throat> they are found like a diamond among the millions of pebbles. He murmured and played to providence in the following language. I was determined not to hurry the matter, destroying himself and family, but kept hoping that providence would turn up something to prevent it from happening if the intent were wrong. But instead of that, every circumstance, from the greatest to the smallest trifle, during the whole of that term, that is three years, and long before it, 
only tended to convince me of how terrible fortune is. And that it is, against me here on earth, I have borne the stings and arrows of outrageous fortune long enough, and by opposing, I can only end them. Being too arrogant to submit to the humbling dispensations of providence, and not having fortitude and courage enough to encounter and sustain the inconvenience arise from challenging circumstances, he entertained the cowardly thought of flying from them and taking sanctuary in the unknown next life. But the guilt and danger of these actions were too apparent to allow him to resolve upon this without first bringing himself to disbelieve and reject the scriptures. And to make it still less dangerous in his view, he gave in to the fatalistic scheme, judging God to be so far the author of all the actions of men as to allow them no other agency than that of mere machines. And upon this hypothesis, he concluded that there is no sin. In theory, at least, he is actually being more consistent in saying there is no consequence for our sin if there is no sin than those who say there is no sin but still want men to act correctly. But even with such a view of the actions of men, added to his professed disbelief in the revelation of the Bible and future punishment, was not enough to fully satisfy him with respect to his safety in perpetrating deeds so unnatural and atrocious. And so he turned to fanaticism and superstition. In one of his letters, he says, You may believe the hand of heaven is in this matter. I used to be a great enemy to superstition, but however it is, I have by lately had random feelings, I really think, from God, to convince me that I am right. But these I will not describe. I mentioned before that my wife had a dream concerning this affair, which in another paper dated November 18th, he relates in these words. Yesterday morning, she told me her dream that she thought I had wrote many papers and was earnestly concerned about her, that these papers were spotted with blood, and that she also saw a man wound himself past recovery and blood guggle, as she expressed it, from different parts of his body. Poor woman. She little thought that the greater part of that dream would be realized within three days. But I am unappalled and think the hand of heaven is really with us. She has since had two more, one of them, that she was suddenly seized and liable to great punishment that it created, created great confusion in her. But she afterwards got free and was happy. From her excellence of heart, I have no doubt that this will be the case with her. On the Thanksgiving night, she dreamed that her three daughters all lay dead, and they even froze in that situation. And even yet, I am hardly concerned. Oh, my God, wonderful indeed are your works. In the highest wisdom, you have contrived them all. All of this must be right, or else I am hardened deep. Some of these will be called the suggestions of the devil, but men may rely upon it, that I have ever trusted in a much higher power for this course, and it is he alone that now directs me and supports me. In another letter, speaking of the intended massacre of himself and family, he says, In fine clear days, when I am most cheerful, and in a morning when I first awake, free from any disturbance, I seem to be convinced in a steady, calm, and reasonable way that it is appointed for me to do it, that it is my duty, and that it must be done, that it is God himself that prompts and directs me. In all my reflections and investigations, I really believe. But if it should at last prove Mr. Devil or any other evil spirit, all that I can say about it is that I was born a very unlucky fellow. Dreadful delusion, strange inconsistencies, horrible blasphemy. But how surprising is it really when a man who rejects the infallible evidence in favor of the divinity of the Christian religion, a religion which he agrees to be the most benevolent, but still says that God never makes an extraordinary revelation of himself to man while on earth. But then this same man will pretend and be confident that he has given him various inclinations and feelings that he is right in forming and taking measures to carry out an execution. This man rejected God's revelation Yet he went on to do something that no man whose conscience is not seared as with a hot iron can think of doing without abhorrence. It is surprising that one who ranked himself among the few sublime geniuses thought this way. He thought himself so smart for rejecting the Bible, yet he also convinced himself that his wife's dreams and his own feelings at her narration of them was a convincing argument that the hand of heaven was with him. Such dreams related in the manner of fear we may suppose were by her, should have had a natural tendency to move the affections and give a check to his evil designs. This he seemed to, seemed to be aware of, 
and considered his being unaffected and unappalled at the notion as owing either to supernatural divine help and support or to his own hardness of heart. The latter he would not admit to, but how astonishing that he could imagine it to be the former. But why do I express astonishment? Can anything truly surprise us when someone in an age of enlightenment so hatefully opposes God by rejecting a revelation supported by both internal and external evidence of its divine origin? Should we find anything unexpected in someone who, against reason and their own awareness of human freedom, views mankind as mere automatons and regards God as the sole cause of all the actions of wicked individuals? Is it conceivable that any opinion could then be too absurd for such a person to embrace, or any inconsistency too glaring for them to commit? Is it beyond belief that such an individual might be abandoned by God, subjected to strong delusion, and begin believing falsehoods that lead to damnation because they refuse to accept the truth and found pleasure in unrighteousness? The atrocious acts carried out by this man, guided by such principles, serve as a more powerful refutation of those principles than any argument can articulate. The the severe judgment of heaven allowing his self-proclaimed deist and fatalist to be led by his errors to the dreadful extent of premeditatedly murdering himself and his entire family, I suspect will instill fill in the hall fear in the hearts of those who boast of holding such a worldview. If anything can instill such fear short of coming to the judge of the world in fiery judgments against his adversaries, should anyone still dare to openly profess such principles after witnessing these principles played out in such a horrific manner, and having such horrifying evidence of the destructive and fatal consequences, they ought to be regarded as individuals posing the most severe threat to society. How greatly to be dreaded are all who embrace such principles. How unfit are such persons to be entrusted either with private or public important affairs, whatever their accomplishments may be in other respects. How unsafe must a woman or family be in the hands of a man under the influence of such principles. His affection, his fondness for them, instead of being their security, may prove the very occasion of their destruction. This was the case with the unhappy woman and children whose remains are here before us. It is a very threatening idea for us that there are so many in this land, a land greatly distinguished in respect of religious light and liberty, who scoff at and ridicule the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Oh, that all who strive with their maker and redeemer might be awakened by his voice, which cries with such terrible accents in this event, and be alarmed with a sense of their guilt and danger. However, if those vehement adversaries of God have been so profoundly blinded that they can no longer see the path of their own peace, there is hope that others, not firmly entrenched in loose beliefs, despite occasionally trivializing Christian doctrines in thought and speech, will awake. It is crucial that they beware, lest they too become callous through the deceitfulness of sin. Those who react with impatience to adverse events, murmuring and complaining, resorting to unlawful means for relief, have ample reason to tremble. By contending against God in this manner, they dishonor and provoke him to anger. Should he leave them to their own devices, they would pursue courses leading to their eternal downfall. It is our duty as human beings, and especially as Christians, to endure hardships with humility, patience, and strength, learning to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. If the unfortunate individual who chose to destroy himself and his family rather than live in what he falsely believed was a manner fitting his status, had been content with the basic necessities he possessed and could have obtained had he been humble and trusted in God, he might have remained among the living with his period of probation prolonged. But yielding to pride and impatience, he was allowed to commit grave crimes, the final one of which he had no opportunity to repent, and his fate is sealed until the judgment on the last day. The fact that he was allowed to harbor such diabolical intentions in secrecy for an extended period and then execute them without raising suspicion is one of the mysterious workings of God that calls for deep humility. Today, we gather to honor the memory of of the victims who tragically succumbed to the dreadful error of a husband and father, mourning their exceptionally unfortunate fate. With no relatives present to mourn for them, the faces and tears of this large gathering bear witness to the grief felt by everyone, deeply moved by their untimely, sudden, and shocking deaths. While we shed tears for the terribly unfortunate women and children who are no longer with us, 
let us also hold in our hearts tender sympathy for her elderly mother and other close relatives who are far away. Let's offer prayers for them, asking that they be prepared for this distressing news, finding solace in trusting the Lord, and receiving all the divine support and comfort needed during this uniquely challenging trial and sorrow. As we draw this gathering to a close, let us all reflect that every person is appointed to experience death once and afterward base judgment. We are unaware of the day and manner of our departure from this life. Our times are under God's control. It's of utmost importance that we reconcile with him before it's too late. The tragic incident that brought us together today serves as a deeply humbling and alarming reminder of the severe flaws in human nature and the peril of opposing our Creator. It's truly astonishing to contemplate the heinous crimes the human mind can commit when left unchecked. If not for moments when, in righteous judgment, God withdraws his restraint from sinners, we might find it impossible to believe that individuals could reach such heights of cruelty and wickedness as some have done. Let us be afraid to strive with our Maker and oppose Him in any way whatsoever. No one has ever resisted Him and prospered. If any of us have found ourselves at odds with Him, may we be inspired to cease such opposition and earnestly commit to submitting to His laws, which are entirely holy, fair, and righteous. Let us gratefully accept His grace, humbly surrender to His providential trials, and willingly align with the benevolent intentions behind them. May the Lord graciously pour out His Spirit upon us all, aligning every thought, inclination, and desire of our souls with His will, so that we may be found blameless and at peace with Him on the great day of His revelation. Therefore, be vigilant and pray continuously that you may be considered worthy to escape all the forthcoming events and stand confident before the Son of Man. One thing that really stood out to me, and I have already used this this point with people, and and it's it's interesting because uh, when as soon as I have used this point with people, people like they had the same response I did when I heard it, which was like, "Wow, I've actually never thought of it that way before." But he said, "You know, there's really no explaining something this evil. There's nothing to explain it. It's horrible what happened." And yet he said, "If God didn't sometimes pull back His restraining hand." And allow these really, really evil things to happen. You would not believe that humans were capable of it. If he didn't, if he, if you, and, and isn't that kind of true? As soon as you hear about something like a man killing his family or, or these horrible things that happen under dictatorships, or you hear these evil things in the world, and isn't it almost always your first and initial response is, I don't believe it. How could anybody do something like that? And Marsha's response is, you're right, you don't believe it. And if it didn't happen, you never would. And it goes to show just how much God is restraining evil in this world that we don't find this common. And he also says, like, this is a sign of just how much God must love us, that he would be willing to sacrifice his son, that Christ would be willing to come and save us, knowing that humans are capable of this much evil. He knows just how capable of evil we humans really, really are. We see little glimpses of it sometimes in moments like this, and we are appalled, and we are shocked, and we are broken, yet God has seen all of it, and yet he still chose to forgive us. And I was like, that is such a powerful way of looking at the situation that I have never come up with, and I don't think that if I had been left on my own, I would have ever come up with it. And it's just the kind of thing that I think— that God gives to somebody when they need it in a moment like this, when you're preaching a sermon like this, is just the kind of truth you needed. And I feel very blessed that we get to read that truth 220, 40 years, however long it's been. Um, we get to hear that and, and get that wisdom now too. I, I've already, as you, I've already had people that I've been in conversations and I've said, you know, I read this, this sermon and this is what he said. And, and this is how I think it applies to these other situations. And every time I have the people kind of look at me and, they, and they've been like, well, you know what? That's true. I would have never thought of it that way. And I'd love 
this aspect of revived thoughts where we get to bring sermons of the past back. And I can't tell you how many times there has been a thought or a wisdom or, a, or just a way of looking at things that I'm like, I don't think on my own I could have done that. I'm so grateful to the people who've lived before us and that we can read what they've written and that they can put this out for us so that we can have that wisdom today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Stephen Yoder. And again, another thanks to Stephen for bringing this sermon to our attention in the first place. If you enjoyed this sermon, if you have a sermon, if you're sitting on another sermon like this, you're like, hey, I have this other crazy sermon, uh, feel free to send it our way. We're always looking for interesting submissions like this. I I certainly uh, have no problem hearing from people if they have a great one. And if you listen to this episode and you go, wow, you guys just take listeners reading the sermons. Yes, every single episode of Revive Thoughts is read by a different speaker, and we would be more than happy. We'd be thrilled to have you reading, too. So if you're listening right now and you would like to add your voice to Revive Thoughts and you have uh, any kind of a working microphone or ability to go to a church maybe and record it or something like that, we would love to have your voice added to what we do here and uh, have you join. There have been hundreds of people who have helped add their voices to this show, and they've been everyone from podcasters and radio hosts and famous speakers, but they've also been lots of regular people who go to church, they enjoy church history, and they thought, hey, can I can I do one as well? We're always looking for more people to add, and maybe that's you. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Yeah.